The Da-Da-Dee-Da-Da Code by Robert Rankin Chapter 1 A headless corpse was floating on the ornamental pond. It troubled the view, and it troubled the ducks, and it troubled the two park rangers. The rangers stood, uncomfortably, upon the north shore, before the Doric temple. The elder of the two was smoking a cigarette. The younger was trying very hard to keep his breakfast down. Now that, said the elder of the two, puffing smoke and speaking through it, is the thin end of the wedge. Bikes and baby buggies, crates and shopping trolleys. I don't know how they sneak this stuff in through the park gates, nor why they feel the need to chuck it in the pond when they do. But that, and he pointed with his cigarette, is too much. Much too much, that is. And, he continued, it's wearing a park ranger's uniform. The younger of the two men, who had lately returned from Tierra del Fuego for reasons known only to himself, was sick into a mulberry bush, which is more difficult than it might appear at first, because it is generally understood that mulberries grow upon trees. Yes, you get it up, lad, said his companion. Better out than in, that is. Egg and bacon and beans? At least your mother loves you. From the middle to the near distance came the sounds of police car sirens. At long last, said the ranger, who still retained his breakfast, stubbing out his cigarette. And it was quite some time before a single police car appeared at the crime scene. Siren shriek and blue light flash and car doors opening up. And policemen, numbering two, looking somewhat tired and harassed. These officers of the law approached the rangers. One had on a helmet, the other a cap. Kenneth Connor, asked the wearer of the cap. Ranger Connor, said the elder of the two rangers, not to be confused with the other Kenneth Connor, and he put out his hand for a shake. Other Kenneth Connor, the wearer of the cap, declined the offer of the hand. Star of the carry-on, so where's this body, then? asked the officer who wore the helmet. Wore the helmet and carried a truncheon, too. Kenneth Connor, not to be confused with the other Kenneth Connor, viewed this truncheon with suspicion. It's a dead body, he said. It won't need truncheoning down. One can never be too careful, said the bearer of the truncheon. The dead don't always stay dead. Sometimes they turn into vampires, or zombies, or boogermen. Put it away, you oaf, his capped superior told him. Boogermen, said Ranger Connor. The constable sheathed his truncheon in the manner known as Huffy, author's note, which is not to be confused with Buffy. Who slays vampires, zombies, and probably booger men too. Inspector Westlake, the superior continued, addressing his words towards Ranger Connor, here on secondment from the Bramfield Constabulary, having traveled far. This enthusiastic officer is Constable Justice. Justice by name and shut up, you oaf. Yes, sir. And your man here, said Westlake, indicating the younger ranger who had now finished his business with the mulberry bush and was making sheepish faces towards all concerned. Ranger Charles Hawtrey, said Ranger Connor, not to be confused with the Lone Ranger, Constable Justice sniggered. Never, said his superior, with the voice of stern authority, never, ever, snigger in my presence again. No, sir. So where is the body? Westlake asked. I asked that, said Constable Justice, and got no response. Should we run these villains in for concealing evidence, Gov? Inspector Westlake cuffed the constable lightly around the head. Return to the motor, he told him. Get the other cars on the blower 
and aid them in reaching our present location. But, Gov, the body car, said Westlake. Now, said Westlake. Do it, said Westlake, too. Grumble, 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 went the chastened constable. And grumbling so, he slouched off to the car, muttering the words boogermen underneath his breath. Children, said Inspector Westlake, shaking his head in sadness. They are sending us children nowadays. Ranger Hawtrey made a face. Surely that is illegal, he said. Inspector Westlake yawned and stretched. And so, he said, perhaps not the best way to begin a bright spring day, but where is the body? Floating there, Ranger Connor lit another cigarette and pointed with it. Headless and horrible and messing up the pond. Inspector Westlake peered. Indeed so, he said, cocking his head from side to side. You've a body there, no mistake. Your lads will have it out before the park opens, won't they? Inspector Westlake shook his head. The park won't be opening today, said he. But it must, said Ranger Connor. Even Hitler's Luftwaffe couldn't close the park. The park closes on Christmas days only. It was closed yesterday, as you know full well, said Inspector Westlake. And it will be closed today also. And that is that. The pond will have to be dragged in search of the head, and the entire park searched also, inch by inch, by trained specialists in the field. Them at the big house won't like this, said Ranger Connor. Them at the big house will have to lump it then. Inspector Westlake patted at his pockets. As was ever the way with inspectors, he was in the process of giving up smoking. You couldn't spare a fag, I suppose, he asked. No, said Ranger Connor. I could not. The headless body bobbed in the pond. An inquisitive duck peeped in at its neck hole. At length, three further police cars appeared, and a white van with the words Scientific Support, emblazoned in red upon its colorless sides. From this issued a number of men, clad in environmental suits. Spacemen, said Ranger Hawtrey, who was standing with his back to the pond. Scene of crime investigators, specialists in their field, said the inspector. Forget about Horatio Kane and all that CSI Miami too. You don't solve crimes by having ginger hair and standing about in a brown suit with your hands on your hips. Or putting on sunglasses and then taking them off again. We're speaking very slowly, said Ranger Connor, who was a secret fan of CSI Miami. Quite so. Scotland Yard has the very creme de la creme of scene of crime forensic investigators in the known world. What are they doing? asked Ranger Hawtrey. What is that they're pulling out of their van? I'll have to ask you to move along now, said Inspector Westlake. The public are not permitted to watch at work. said Ranger Hawtrey. What is It's the name of the unit. They are so elite that even their acronym is top secret. It's a barbecue, said Ranger Hawtrey. They've got a barbecue out of their van. They're not crime scene investigators. They're a catering unit. Move along now, sir, said Inspector Westlake, or I shall be forced to let my officer employ his truncheon. They're getting out a garden umbrella and folding chairs now. Move along, please, sir. And a crate of beer, said Ranger Connor. And alcoholic beverages may not be consumed within the park's environs without express permission from the management. You too, sir said Inspector Westlake. Job for the professionals now, this. 
Thank you for your cooperation. Please go about your business. But this is my business. Ranger Connor stood his ground. His uniform was every bit as impressive as that worn by Inspector Westlake. He even had metal ribbons sewn into it. And his shoes were more highly polished. This was his territory. He'd worked in this park for 27 years. He wasn't going to be bullied by some bumpkin bobby. Bramfield was a village in Sussex. He'd once passed through it by mistake while on his way to the Bluebell Line. Ranger Connor had a thing about steam trains. And he'd had a very trying week. One way and another. And there was the matter of the landmines that had been sown on the pitch and putt. But he wasn't going to go into that at the moment. I'm not leaving, said Ranger Connor. It would be irresponsible of me to do so. I know every inch of this park, and it's my job to see that not an inch is abused. I'm not having your mob trampling my flower beds. You tell him, Ken, said Ranger Hawtrey. I will, said Ranger Connor, who hated being called Ken. And furthermore, Constable, called Inspector Westlake to Constable Justice, who was sitting on the bonnet of their police car smoking a cigarette. Come over here and arrest this gentleman, will you? Arrest, said Ranger Connor. Arrest me? On what charge? For being a ruddy nuisance. There's a dead man in that pond, and I don't have time to bandy words with you. Who wants hitting? Asked Constable Justice, hurrying up and unsheathing his truncheon. The big one, said the inspector, if he still refuses to move. I do, said Ranger Connor, and I am obliged to warn you, before any attempts are made to hit me in any fashion, that I am an exponent of Dimac, the deadliest martial art in the world, that my hands and feet are deadly weapons, and that I am master of poison hand, a cruel, disfiguring, and mutilating technique which threatening an officer of the law, said Inspector Westlake. That's as good as smiting. Strike this malfeasant down, Constable. Constable Justice hesitated. Dimac, he said in a doubtful, wary tone. Dimac, said Ranger Hawtrey, schooled in Chicago by Count Dante himself. Deadliest man on earth, Count Dante. I've seen Ranger Connor's certificate. He has it up on the wall in the ranger's hut. You have your own special hut, then? asked Constable Justice. How interesting. Constable, roared Inspector Westlake. Take these two men into custody now. I'm charging them with impeding the course of justice. I'm sure they'll just move along if you ask them nicely, Gov, said Constable Justice. Ask them nicely? I'm a police inspector. I don't have to ask anyone nicely. Excuse me, sir, said a member of the scientific support unit, ambling up in his environmental suit, sans helmet. Is there a socket somewhere that we can run an extension cable to? We need to plug in the candy floss machine. Not now, bawled Inspector Westlake, growing most red in the face. Constable, arrest these men at once. Constable Justice raised his truncheon and dithered with it raised. I really wouldn't, said Ranger Hawtrey. It's not worth the months of hospitalization, and learning to walk again can be a very painful business. Right, Inspector Westlake snatched the truncheon from the constable's hand, raised it swiftly over his own head, and accidentally struck the wearer of the environmental suit a really cracking blow to his helmetless head, which was witnessed by the environmental suit wearer's similarly clad fellow workers, who were struggling to erect what looked for all the world to be a tombola stall. 
Constable Justice sniggered once again. Inspector Westlake hit him with the truncheon. I warned you not to snigger, he said. And then the inspector swung at Ranger Connor, and things took a serious turn for the worse. Chapter 2. One Week Earlier Most, if not all, of mankind's problems stem from man's natural inability to accurately predict future events. Think about it. Do. Just for a moment. Imagine how things might be if we were gifted with the ability to accurately foretell future events, and know, in advance, what would be the result of any particular course of action we were thinking to take. How simple things would be then. We would never make any mistakes, and there would be love and laughter all around, and nation would speak peace unto nation, and there would be no crime, and we'd all live happily ever after. Although, what is certain is that a lot of thought would go into each particular action, so much so, in fact, that society would probably grind to a halt. Discuss. It is absolutely certain, however, that in the case of Johnny Hooker, had he been granted the gift of precognition, he would not have taken the course of actions that he did, a course that would lead inevitably to him floating headless and lifeless in the ornamental pond at Gunnersbury Park a short seven days into the future. Johnny was not aware that this was what fate had in store for him, and even if he had been, it is doubtful whether he would have cared. For Johnny wasn't a happy man. Very far from it, in fact. Johnny was a tormented soul, tormented in so many ways. We learn quite early on as children that life isn't fair, that the world is composed of the haves and the have-nots, and that the have-nots greatly outnumber the haves. But we are also taught that if we work hard and do our best, we will receive our fair share and be right up there with the haves. And most of us learn sooner or later that, sadly, this is a lie. Johnny had been taught many things, but had learned very few. He had learned that he was a have-not, and that life wasn't fair so he had at least grasped the essentials of life. Above and beyond these, he had been granted a basic knowledge of the English language, a natural ear for music, and an extraordinary talent as a guitarist. A talent that, in keeping with the unfairness of life, would sadly go unrecognized until after his tragic early death. Johnny had acquired a few friends, and, to his mind, too many enemies. So Johnny wasn't a happy man. And today, being the day that it was, there was a farmer's market. Thirteen stalls, local produce, numerous varieties of cheese, free-range eggs, homemade yogurts, beeswax candles, quiches and flans and pies made from prime porker pigs. And as ever, the market was being held upstairs, in the loft above Johnny's bedroom. Johnny lay upon his old rotten cot, his hands clamped over his ear holes and his teeth gritted, his eyes tightly closed. He lay in what is known as the fetal position. The sounds of chatting farmer lads filtered down to him through the ceiling's yellow plaster. Bucolic ribaldry, hail fellow well-mets, palms all spat upon and smacked together to signify fair transactions. A goat went bleat. The porker pies were silent. Johnny shifted his position and took up a kind of praying in the direction of Mecca sort of posture, removed his hands from his ear holes, 
drummed them on his pillow, raised his head and shouted, Do shut up! Arose from his bed and stamped his feet and shouted, Go away! Chit-chat went the farming lads. A lady in a straw hat bought some cheese. Johnny yelled abuse at the ceiling, stalked to his bedroom door, a short stalk as the room was not over large, threw open his bedroom door, stalked onto the landing, snatched up the rod with the hook on the end that opened the loft hatch, opened the loft hatch with it, ducked aside as the loft ladder crashed down, as it always did, took a deep breath and shimmied up the ladder. Johnny stuck his head up through the loft hatch and shouted at nothing. There were no farmers in his loft, no stalls, no lady in a straw hat, no pies made from pork or pigs. There were dusty boxes, a bicycle frame, some kind of telescopic clothes-drying jobby, some unlaid rolls of loft insulation. Johnny took another deep breath, coughed from the dust, slunk back down the ladder and returned to his bedroom and his bed. Of course there was no farmer's market up in his loft. Of course there had never been a farmer's market up in his loft. Would never be a farmer's market up in his loft. He was having one of his quote-unquote episodes again because, as his mother told her chums at the bingo, Johnny, her one and only son, was not very well in the head. No farmer's market, said Johnny Hooker. Never was, isn't now, never will be. Somewhere over the rainbow, said Mr. Giggles, the monkey boy. Bluebells fly, or so I have been unreliably informed. And there is no Mr. Giggles, the monkey boy, said Johnny, striking at his left temple with his left fist and covering his eyes with his right one. No need to go all one flew over the cuckold's nest on me, said Mr. Giggles. It's not my fault that you're not very well in the head. You do not exist, said Johnny. You are a fragment of my mashed-up mind. And me, your dearest friend. Perhaps you mean a figment. Mr. Giggles reached out a hairy hand and patted Johnny's head with it. And please do not do that. Johnny sat upon his bed, wearing a very glum face. Let's go to the swimming baths, said Mr. Giggles. Peep in the ladies' changing rooms and spy on their furry bottoms. I can't swim, said Johnny. And I'm not taking you because you don't exist. You are the product of my imagination. You are an imaginary friend. You know I don't like that term, said Mr. Giggles, a-twiddling his furry thumbs. You know that I prefer to be known as an NCC, a non-corporeal companion. Whatever, said Johnny. But you still don't exist. If I don't exist, said Mr. Giggles, how come I can do this? Johnny ignored Mr. Giggles. And this, too. Johnny ignored Mr. Giggles again. And what about this? Johnny was prepared to ignore Mr. Giggles once more, but was distracted from doing so by the sounds of his mother beyond his bedroom door, tripping over the loft ladder and falling into the bathroom. Well, said Johnny to Mr. Giggles, if you're so real, you can prove it by taking the blame for that. Johnny looked up at Mr. Giggles, but Mr. Giggles had gone. Johnny Hooker grumbled and mumbled and buried his face in his hands. He was truly sick of Mr. Giggles. Mr. Giggles had been Johnny's imaginary childhood friend. Johnny had been something of a loner as a child. The other children hadn't taken to him because he was a bit odd and not very well in the head. So Johnny had been grateful when Mr. Giggles turned up in his bedroom one night. Mr. Giggles said that he had run away from the circus. Mr. Giggles wore a fez and a brightly colored waistcoat. He had a suitcase full of treasure and he knew 100 songs. 
Johnny got on very well with Mr. Giggles. The only problem was that when Johnny reached puberty, a time when imaginary friends say farewell and vanish forever to make way for actual friends, generally of the opposite sex, Mr. Giggles had refused to depart. He liked Johnny far too much, he told Johnny, and, as Johnny didn't appear to be making many other friends, he'd stay around for a little while longer to keep him company. And Johnny was now 27, and Mr. Giggles still hadn't gone away. And the problem for Johnny was that Mr. Giggles was just so real. But then so was the farmer's market. Although Johnny could only hear the farmer's market, he couldn't actually see the farmers. He could only see Mr. Giggles. In the past, when a lad... Johnny could see and hear all manner of things that others could not. Noisy ghosts and bad witches, fairies and spacemen and dragons and pirates and all. He could no longer see these things, but some of them he could still hear, and those he could hear tormented him. He'd been through all the usual diagnostics. He'd been prescribed and had taken all the usual antidepressants and uppers and downers and so forth. Chlorpromazine, clozapine, haloperidol, and risperdone, pimazide which had worked a treat on his Tourette syndrome. Then there were all the old favorites, methylphenidate, Ritalin, lithium, Pyridel, anticonvulsant drugs, carmazepine, Tegretol, valparate semisodium, Depakote, gabapentin, neurotin, and lamotrigine, Lamictal. Antidepressants, such as bupropion, Welbutrin, or sertraline, Zoloft, neuroleptics, e.g. haloperidol, Haldol, and benzodiazepines, e.g. lorazepam, Ativan, and aspirin for when he had a headache. And Johnny had learned through bitter experience what to say during counseling sessions in order to remain, quote-unquote, at liberty. Johnny sighed and ground his teeth and listened for the sounds of his mother floundering around on the bathroom floor. She had clearly fallen belly up and, tortoise-like, was quite incapable of writing herself. Johnny, wailed his mother, and Johnny went to help. Having reconfigured his mother into the vertical plane, Johnny dusted her down, straightened the hem of her paisley housecoat, which had ridden up above her surgical stockings, and sought her upper set of false teeth, which had gone adrift in the tumbling. He located these behind the toilet, took them to the sink, rinsed them off under the tap, and returned them to his mother. The old one slotted the artificial railings over her sunken gums, thanked her son, and asked, in as polite a manner as she considered it merited, whether it had indeed, as she had suspected, been his intention to have her murdered to death by leaving the loft ladder in the down position, when he was well aware that she could not see it due to a sight defect she had acquired, whilst riding to hounds with the Berkshire hunt, that had severed the optical nerve that allowed people to see ladders. It wasn't me, Johnny suggested. Was it Mr. Giggles? his mother inquired. It was me, said Johnny. I'm sorry, Mum. You're a good boy, Johnny, said his mother. Even if you do try to kill me dead upon every occasion that arises, I came up here to bring you a cup of tea and a letter that has your name upon it. The tea went down the toilet. The letter, I think, went out the window. Johnny glanced into the toilet. There, half submerged, was his favorite mug, the one with the world's greatest son printed upon it. Out the window, said Johnny, glancing now in that direction. Flew like a bird from my hand. Johnny lowered the toilet lid, and then lowered his mother onto it. I'll pop down to the garden and see if I can find the letter, he told her. And that is what he did. 
Johnny did not exactly bounce down the stairs, although there was a very slight spring in his step. A letter addressed to him? This was something new. Something different. Perhaps his luck was about to change. Perhaps some half-forgotten uncle had died and left him a fortune or something. Johnny reached the foot of the stairs and paused. What was he thinking? Optimistic thoughts? What had put those into his head? Why would he be thinking that something good was about to occur? How weird was that? But Johnny did feel optimistic. Suddenly optimistic. He didn't know why, and he didn't know how, but he did. It was a very strange feeling. Almost as if there was something fateful about this letter. Something life-changing. In the back garden, Johnny found the letter. It was floating on the ornamental pond. Chapter 3 as Johnny fished the letter from the ornamental pond, he noticed something very strange about the garden. It was very, very quiet. It had never been a noisy garden, but there's always some noise to it, some ambient sounds, as it were, traffic rumblings, a neighbor's radio, birds a twitter, washing swinging to and fro, scurrying of beetles, bells in distant steeples, author's note, poetic license, beetles and steeples, you're allowed that sort of thing and pretty maids all in a row. Ho, ho. But not today. Not at this particular moment. Johnny paused in the shakings of wet from his litter. There was absolutely no sound. It was as if all sound, the very sound of the world itself, had been suddenly switched off. The power plug pulled from the socket, as it were. A great and terrible silence. Johnny rooted a finger into his ear. It was a horrible silence. Johnny did not like this silence one bit. Johnny shook his head about. It's quiet, ain't it? said Mr. Giggles. Is that letter for me? No, it's not for you. It's... And ouch! went Johnny, as all the sounds in the world came rushing back. What was that? What was that? That, my friend, was a pregnant pause, said Mr. Giggles. Something significant is about to occur. In this garden? Mr. Giggles shook his furry head. I very much doubt that, he said. I can't imagine a dullard like yourself ever doing anything significant, can you? Johnny ignored Mr. Giggles once more, and addressed himself to the address upon the envelope that he now held in his hand. It was his address, and above it was his name, Jonathan Hooker, Esquire. Open it up, then, said Mr. Giggles. I'm ignoring you, said Johnny. I'm not talking to you. Fair enough said Mr. Giggles, tilting his fez to the angle known and loved as rakish. So open up the envelope and let's have a look at the letter. Whatever it is, it is none of your business. Well, obviously not, as I clearly do not exist. Jonathan Hooker opened the envelope. As the envelope was soggy, he made quite a mess of this and managed to tear the letter within and generally spoil things. Generally. With difficulty, he withdrew, unfolded, and read the letter. Dear Mr. Hooker, he read, Your name has been selected by our competition supercomputer to be a winner, winner, winner. If you wish to claim your prize, please present yourself to... Blah, 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 went Johnny. Present yourself to where, said Mr. Giggles. Blah, 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 said Johnny. That's what it says here. If I was going to tell you, which I'm not. Naturally, said Mr. Giggles. Give us a butcher's at the letter. Johnny gave Mr. Giggles a butcher's. Mr. Giggles read from the letter. 
It's not blah, 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 he said. It's da-da-dee-da-da. And what is that supposed to mean? It means what it is, said Mr. Giggles. It's a musical. You're a musician. You know what it means. As in the way that most tunes go, da-da-dee-da-da. Exactly. Like Waltzing Matilda. The tune of each verse goes, da-da-dee-da-da. Da-da-dee-da-da. Who will come a-waltzing Matilda with me? So what does this letter mean? Why are you asking me? I don't exist, remember? Johnny checked his wristlet watch. He'd forgotten to wind it the night before, and it had stopped. What time is it? he asked Mr. Giggles. The monkey boy consulted a rather decorative chronometer that he drew from the pocket of his colorful waistcoat. Ten-thirty of the morning clock, said he. Sun over the yard arm, time for a pint of wallop. Ten-thirty, said Johnny. Fair enough. I give up. You always do. I don't know why you go to all the trouble. Every day you try to persuade yourself, and also myself, that I do not exist. And every day I give up at ten-thirty, said Johnny. It's best to, Mr. Giggles smiled upon Johnny. Why don't we go down to the pub and try to fathom the meaning of your most peculiar missive? Will you be getting the first round in? Mr. Giggles raised a herstute brow upon his herstute forehead. You say that every single day, said he which, curiously, I find strangely comforting. Mr. Giggles followed Johnny through the garden gate. Upstairs, in the bathroom, Johnny's mother, who had slipped from the toilet lid, floundered once more upon her back, making sounds that oddly resembled those of a seagull. The pub was called the Middleman. It stood in Pope's Lane, one hundred yards before the northern entrance to Gunnersbury Park. It had been standing there for more than one hundred years, and no one so far had told it to move. Within the pub, and standing behind the bar counter, stood O'Fagan the publican. Within the pub, and standing behind the bar counter, stood O'Fagan the publican. He had been standing there for five minutes. His wife had told him to move three times already this morning. O'Fagan felt certain, deep down in his bones, that she was sure to ask him to do so again. But O'Fagan was just like the rest of us when it came to his abilities regarding accurate predictions of the future. His wife would never again ask him to move, because later in the day she would run off with the sales rep who traveled in tobaccos, and had only entered the pub with the intention of introducing its cumbents to a new brand of cigarettes known as Dodrillos. Sometimes love, it seems, conquers all. At other times, who can say? I say good morning to you both, said O'Fagan the publican. To myself and Mr. Giggles? Johnny Hooker inquired. "'Sun's over the yard-arm, and all is right in God's heaven,' said O'Fagan. "'And although I can't actually see or hear Mr. Giggles, "'and only know of his supposed existence, "'because every time you're really pissed, "'you blather on and on about how he's your bestest friend.' "'Johnny Hooker groaned. "'But anyway,' continued O'Fagan, "'I had an imaginary friend myself when I was a kid.' "'I know,' said Johnny. "'I went to school with you. "'And I was the friend that you had.' "'I've never quite understood that,' said O'Fagan. "'because clearly I'm much older than you. "'I'll ask my wife about it later. "'She knows all kinds of things. "'She went to boarding school and can impersonate ponies and everything. "'Good morning, bar lord,' said a well-clad fellow "'who had but lately entered the bar. "'I would like to take this opportunity "'to introduce you to a new brand of cigarette. "'Would you mind introducing my wife to it?' said O'Fagan. "'She's through that door over there.' "'Fair enough,' said the fellow. "'And with that he was gone.' "'Nice chap by the sound of him,' said O'Fagan to Johnny. "'But then what do I know?' 
You know how to draw a pint, said Johnny, miming the pulling of one. Best stick with what you know, I suppose. O'Fagan applied himself to the pump handle and drew off a pint of King Billy. He presented this to Johnny and said, And what is Mr. Giggles having, then? Mr. Giggles is buying his own. Cheap shot, said Mr. Giggles. A tot of rum and a bag of nuts will see me fine. A bag of nuts, said Johnny. Dry roasted, honey roasted, salted, plain or fancy. Fancy nuts, said Johnny. Not really, said O'Fagan. I prefer crisps. The sun went behind a cloud and a dog howled in the distance. Which reminds me, said O'Fagan. Did you hear that really big silence earlier? You heard that too, Johnny asked. Or failed to hear everything else? Quite so. It fair put the wind up me. I was just about to open a letter, and my wife was just about to tell me to move, when the world went silent. I thought my hearing aid had packed up, but you don't wear a hearing aid. Of course I don't. Do I look like a homosexual? Not in the slightest. So how do they look, in case one comes in here and I don't recognize him? You're confusing me, said Johnny. Confusing you with whom? Search me, said Johnny. Why? Are you hiding something? The clock chimed behind the bar, and a dog howled in the distance. I must get that dog fixed, said O'Fagan. Now, what were we talking about? Silence, said Johnny. But I thought you enjoyed my conversation. You said that the world went silent when you were about to open an envelope. So I did, said O'Fagan. What a coincidence. Do you have the letter? Might I have a look at it? I do, and you might. Have you decided yet upon what variety of nuts you'd like to purchase? Only I get a bit anxious if things are left hanging in the air. Johnny said nothing. A moment passed. I was hoping you'd ask me what kind of things, said O'Fagan. I have quite a list. You'd be surprised by some of the items on it. No, I wouldn't, said Johnny. But they'd probably make me more miserable than I already am. I thought things were going to perk up when I heard that I'd got a letter. I almost got excited. Me too, said O'Fagan, but that was a long time ago, on my wedding night. Then things went altogether quiet, and I didn't like that at all. Exactly the same as my wedding night. Dry roasted nuts will be fine. Tell you what, I have to serve that strange-looking fellow over there who's been bobbing up and down for the last five minutes. This is the letter. Have a look. And with that, he thrust the letter at Johnny and went off to serve the bobber. Are you a homosexual? Johnny heard him ask. We don't have any dry roasted nuts, said O'Fagan. Eh? went Johnny. Sorry, said O'Fagan, only thinking aloud. Same letter? asked Mr. Giggles. Johnny examined the publican's letter. Same letter, he said. Present yourself to da-da-dee-da-da, just the same as mine. We'd better get a head start on him then said Mr. Giggles. We don't want to be last in the line when there's prizes to be had. If you've had this letter and he's had this letter, then probably damn near everyone else in the borough has had this same letter too. You'd better get a move on if you want to be a winner. So what is this da-da-dee-da-da then? Mr. Giggles sighed. I would have thought it was pretty obvious, he said. In order to win the prize, all you have to do is work that out. So the letter is itself the competition? Precisely. All you have to do is work out the answer. Crack the code, as it were. Crack the da-da-dee-da-da code? In a nutshell, yes. Johnny Hooker mulled over the concept. It was possible that every household in the borough had received such a letter. 
It was possible that someone in every household would attempt to crack the code and win whatever prize there was to be won. And so, what might possibly make him, Jonathan Hooker, 27 years of age, and, as his mother reliably informed the vicar each week after the Sunday service, quote-unquote, more stone-bonkered than a handbag full of owls, think that he would have the remotest hope of winning whatever there was to possibly be won. Absolutely no chance whatsoever, was the obvious conclusion. Johnny Hooker mulled over, and, having done so, arrived at a decision that would inevitably prove fatal. I'll do it, said Jonathan Hooker. I'll crack the da-da-dee-da-da code. 